Thank you for choosing to listen to episode number 38 of Kansas City Food Memories. Today I sit down with Doug Frost, certified master of wine and certified sommelier, one of only three people in the world to hold both of those certifications. It'll be a great conversation. Remember that this is a taped presentation of a live radio show, so do not call or text in when prompted when you're listening. Also, you might want to take a moment before or after this to go to makethemsmile.com. That's the website for our business, Best Regards Bakery and Cafe, that helps support, actually pays for the entirety of this show. You might be interested in some of the new developments we have on this. We have live streaming, video streaming on a few episodes, and we have some other interesting things coming up. But get all the news and find out what the changes are coming up on Kansas City Food Memories. Thank you. Enjoy. Well, good morning. This is Robert Dunsing, and thank you for tuning in today to Kansas City Food Memories. Just in case you missed it, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, last week I had Jim Eddy of Eddie's Loafenstein and the Eddy family, and his dad had Eddie's Lounge back in the 50s and um, places like that, along with one of his great friends, Jamie Farr. And I got to tell you, those are two of the most interesting and kindest people you'll ever meet. And that reminds me, uh, if you want to go, uh, if you want to catch that, uh, go back and listen to the podcast on, um, go to any podcast provider and search for Kansas City Food Memories, you'll find that. And also reminds me, I still need to go out and watch Cannibal Run this weekend. That remind me, uh, Jamie Farr was the person who made that all possible. He was the sheik that funded the entire Cannibal Run. But it's really interesting to, to talk to somebody like that, loves Kansas City, somebody that was on the outside, get his point of view, and also to hear those stories. Now, we're live almost every Saturday at 10 a.m. to take you on a stroll down memory lane and talk about the good old days. We share stories about our favorite restaurants, food, people, and places. Now, this show is made possible because of your support of Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. My wife, Sherry, and I absolutely love Kansas City, and this show is an extension of the bakery. This is who we are. Now, if you've not yet done so, now would be a good time to put the phone number into your phone. The regulars already have, but the phone number is 913-586-7798. Now, that's the same for the phone and for the text line. So if you have any questions, comments, or corrections, especially corrections, text that in. Don't call that in. And I could choose to read it or not. But uh, you can do that anytime. And then a little bit later, I will open it up for questions or comments uh, for the guests that I have. Now, today's guest is really unique. I'm going to try to bring a little class to the program, but I think all of you know it's not really going to stick, but we can pretend for one hour. Today's guest is actually a master of wine and also is a certified master sommelier, one of only three people in the world to hold both of those. Uh, Doug Frost, welcome to the program. Good. All right. So that sounds really intimidating and, um, oh, I'm not going to say pretentious, but it sounds, it's really intimidating. So a master, certified master of wine, what does that mean? Well, a master of wine, uh, the title uh, has been around for about 75 years or so. It's a a series of examinations, a series of written examinations that um, entail blind tasting, uh, understanding of viticulture, understanding of winemaking, understanding of marketing, and um, it has about a, uh, well, somewhere between 1% and a 2% pass rate, ultimately, for people who get involved. So it's, a, it's kind of a bummer of an exam, but it's yeah. very much a writing exam. And then the Master Sommelier is all about can you serve 
uh, a bunch of cranky master sommeliers, you know, in, in the worst restaurant setting you've ever, you know, found yourself dropped into. So it too entails blind tasting, but it's a lot of service issue uh, issues. And, and indeed, uh, when people ask me, you know, what's the curriculum for the master sommelier, I'll typically tell them, look, it's every word that you could see on any label of any wine made anywhere in the world. Can you tell us what those words mean? Can you, you know, identify mm-hmm. the wine? Tell us How's it going to taste? You know, what should I do with it? Should I serve it cold? Should I serve it, you know, 20 years from now? That kind of thing. So so you're you're examined on all those. So you take the MS, you take the MW, and there's a Venn diagram there, but they, they uh, sure. sort of express in different ways. Now, the sommelier, that also includes spirits and beer as well, doesn't it? It does. It does. Okay. Yeah, the MW, the Master of Wine, is wine strictly. And so the MS is kind of fun because I don't dress drink wine. I kind of am fond of mezcal when you get right down to it. And I think a beer tastes pretty good on, on a certain, on certain afternoons and, you know, yada, yada. Uh, so yeah, you're, you're examined on your knowledge of really anything that could happen in, in the restaurant setting, particularly when it comes to beverage. You know, I think everybody's pet peeve if you you're in a restaurant and you're like, Oh, I, I need a fork is, you know, you flag down a waiter and they go, I'm sorry, sir. I'll get your server. It's like, I just want a fork. Yeah. Really? Do you need, you know, someone authorized to get my particular fork? No. And and so, you know, the same thing kind of happens with the MS. It's like, look, if if something, you know, suddenly something goes wrong and somebody's like, hey, this this, you know, pale ale doesn't taste right. You ought to be the guy to go, oh, wow, the line needs cleaning or, sure. oh, wow, you know, there's just something there was something in the glass. Let's just get you a fresh glass or whatever it is. All right, well, that's fascinating because it's not my problem as an attitude I cannot stand in any business. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's... that's it, it really is gross. All right, so were you exposed to wine as a child? No, I was not. I actually, I remember distinctly the first time I ever had a wine. Uh, I was 15 years old and I, we were at my uncle's house and my aunt and uncle, virtually everybody but us lived in the Bay Area and, and uh, we lived in the Midwest. We moved out here when I was a little kid. And we'd go back every Christmas to hang out with the families, uh, you know, with the, the various cousins and such. And my aunt and uncle, he had a wine cellar he told me about because, he, you know, it, it, we're having dinner and he's like, hey, Doug, you want to help me pick the wine? And, you know, when you're 15, you're like, well, yeah, you know. So we went downstairs. It wasn't a real wine cellar. It was like probably 10 cases of wine under yeah. his basement stairs. But I had never seen anything like yeah. it outside of like a Hitchcock movie, you know, Notorious or something, you know. So I was like, oh, this is really cool. And he gave me my first wine lesson um, because he just explained to me the difference between Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. And how old were you then? I was 15. Okay. And and I picked a Pinot Noir. In fact, I still remember the wine I picked, which was Louis Martini Special Select Pinot Noir 1968. <laughs> and I thought... This is really cool. I've never had wine before. I'd tasted beer. My dad had let me taste, you know, scotch or, you know, a martini or such and and really didn't know what to think of it. But um, wine, wow, this tastes really good. And then I started working in restaurants. So that that kind of uh, uh, that kind of enthusiasm came sure. in handy. Okay. So I'm going to go out on the limb and guess you're probably the only MS to have grown up in Hutchinson, Kansas. <laughs> I'm very sure of that. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Wichita, so Hutch was one of the yeah, places we went Well, to. I lived in Wichita for a while as well, okay. so out in Westlink. So, uh, oh, yeah, you know, sure. Went to, went to grade school there, and uh, and then we moved uh, to, to Hutch uh, after a, a stay in Fort Worth, Texas. So we okay. moved around the Midwest. Okay. All right, so then you went to K-State? I went to K-State, All right, yeah. so did you drink wine? 
Or did you go to Aggieville like everybody else? Uh, well, Aggieville lost its luster pretty quickly, you know, when you, when you actually live there. So, yeah, I actually did uh, drink wine. I, I, you know, I always try to tell people that my upbringing sounds a little weird with regards to wine because the very first wine I had is sort of a legendary wine. I mean, it really is considered one of the, the benchmarks for Pinot Noir in California. My second wine was Country Quencher, however. My, and my third <laughs> wine was Annie Greensprings. And the first wine, it was not in Aggieville, but the first wine I bought in a restaurant was Blue Nun okay. in, in Manhattan. And I knew I was getting lucky tonight. I mean, I, I bought Blue Nun, baby. So, we're, you know, I'm, I'm classy. All right. So we'll get to the non-classy beers or wines for me a little bit later. But let me ask you about restaurants. So what's your earliest fond restaurant memory in Kansas City? Well, that's a good question. Um, moved here right out of uh, uh, college and actually went to um, – decided to do the, the whole um, four, five-month thing overseas. Saved up a bunch of money. Um, uh, my parents lived here, uh, but I had never lived here uh, or I had not lived here. Was it a wine trip or was it? No, God, God knows. It it was just, I'm, I'm going to, you know, get a backpack. It's kind of the usual thing. You know, one buddy was supposed to come along, bails on you. And so you're like, to hell with it. I'm going. And and I was gone for four months and, and after a a few weeks in in Europe, I realized my money's not going to last. So I headed to Asia. So I went to India and, and, you know, Turkey and Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan and places like that. And how was the food? Any food oh, memories yeah, the from food, that? The food was, yeah, oh, God, you know, the first time you have lamb brains, you're kind of like, wow, I don't know about this, man. <laughs> yeah. And then you kind of like, it's pretty good, you know? <laughs> it's Are like, you still adventurous on your food? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, you certainly had to be. But it is funny. I, I do remember a couple of experiences in Europe. Um, in particular, you know, I had one of those Lonely Planet guidebooks. And um, when I got to Nantes in, in uh, Northwest uh, France, I knew I got to go to a place like this. It's somewhere in this guidebook, and I got to get a bowl full of mussels, and I got to have a glass of muscadet uh-huh. because, well, because you're supposed to. Yeah, and and it was almost revelatory. I mean, it really was one of those things where I had I, I liked wine, but I hadn't really understood yet how it interacted with with food, and that was one of those experiences. And when I came back to Kansas City, um, a friend of mine worked at Plaza Three, and I initially was working at a a grocery store, just trying to, you know, get some money back together. And I moved in with my parents and then moved out, started selling, um, uh, basically educational programs, uh, driving around being a traveling salesman that didn't work. Cause we were, it was a friend of mine and I, we were trying to raise enough money to, to literally believe this or not, we were going to, to produce an off Broadway show. We were going <laughs> to get enough money together by producing, or, or I should say, uh, sponsoring and supplying, uh, entertainment to grade schools and high schools around the Midwest that we were going to generate enough cash. But then I was moving to New York and we, and we had the script. We had the, we, we had the, the rights to this particular script. It was a candor and ebb script for God's sake. Okay. We, we thought we were, you know, we were swanky. Nothing came of that at all. So <laughs> after all that falls apart, my, my friend Bismarck, who I knew from uh, high school was like, Plaza Three, Plaza Three is a good restaurant. You make some good money here, and once you come in, and so I got, I got hired there and worked there. Okay, so how long did you work there? I was there a couple of years, well, a year and a half, probably okay. closer to. All right, so before I, I jump around a lot because I, I don't want to miss out on details, and I go back and listen to the program to get my notes. So at Plaza, so Plaza Three, do you know any of the chefs still 
that used to work there a long time ago? Oh, gosh. You know, who was there? Scott? Uh, you don't have to mention names on the air. Oh, well, okay. that's okay. I, I, I think of Scott, who uh, I've, I've forgotten Scott's last name, who I really, really enjoyed. The only, the only, you know, he was one of those people that it was nice to walk into his kitchen. Yeah. There are definitely chefs that it is not nice to walk into oh, their I, kitchen. Oh, I, I understand <laughs> that 100%. And, uh, yeah, you know, in fact, I was telling somebody a, a Plaza 3 story that w- would get me fired today. Uh, too late. Uh, but, you know, way back when, I had... It's it's my favorite waiter revenge story. Uh, no one wants to hear this. I'm going to tell it anyway because All right. you know these things happen. It, it's like yes, I know you think I'm going to tell you that I spit in somebody's food. No, that's not classy. You know that's not. You're not going to get away with that. Plus, no. that's gross. That's that's really really right. gross. No, I had I had a four top, and it was two couples. They were drunk. They were complete jackasses is the only way to describe them. I mean, the guy with the, both the guys were just working me. Like I was, you know, their little, little kid brother that they were going to go beat up later on. I mean, it was just, it was way over, over the line. And so I thought finally, I, I'm a, I got to get this guy, you know, this is out, this is ridiculous. You know, they call me asshole and, you know, making fun of my hair, you know, whatever it is. And, and I'm sure my hair needed to be made fun of back then because I, you know, I, even though I wasn't a fan of The Cure, I looked like I wanted to be in the band, you know, but whatever. Leave me alone, dude. Yeah. I'm just trying to give you food and be nice to you. And and so um, the guy orders like a well-done strip steak, uh, you know, whatever. So I went back to the to the uh, broiler cook who I had a good relationship with, and I was like, I, I grabbed a, an empty plate and I said, Cece, I need you to put this under the broiler. I want this, this baby to glow. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing, man? I'm like, don't worry about it. I got this. And he was like, and kind of, we both kind of looked down the line at the manager. He's not paying attention. Yeah. It's like, okay. So, you know, my steak comes up and I'm like, put it on that plate. And he's like, all right, man, you know, and he puts it up and I, I have waiter fingers, you know, but I take it off the line and my fingers are, you know, smokes coming yeah. off of my fingers. Said, so I'm like, wow, this is going to work. You know, so I drop it on the tray, walk out there, drop the food down, you know, oh, take the, the, the plate, the trays off and, and, you know, drop the food down, except for the one guy who's the ringleader, you know, who's the real jerk. And then I said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, made, made sure everybody's listening. I said, Please be careful of the plate, sir. It's very hot. And then I set it down so, you know, it's just leaning over the table by (laughs) one inch. And when he touched it, he screamed like a little girl. And the steak literally flies into the air. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I got like a 10-cent tip. But, man, it was worth it. So that one moment you stuck up for yourself probably changed your whole life. Well, I don't know. You don't have to – well, you you, you discovered you don't have to take all of that from somebody. Well, it's it's true. You know, generally speaking, my my philosophy, when I train people in the restaurant business now – I would never tell them this story. So please oh, no. just, you know, no one no. ever remember this that. This is I said just that between story. you, me, and Rocco. Exactly. I mean, that's the only people listening Nobody to Nobody right else now. is listening. Right. That's great. So the reason, the reason but, I was But that- what I was going to say is just that, you know, my philosophy now is the Ritz Carlton okay. uh, uh, line, which I think is perfectly uh, uh, apt for the restaurant business. Ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. We're all good people. We're all derf- deserving of respect. Yeah. I would never treat anybody with disrespect. Um, but when somebody treats you really, really no, badly, I mean, that's th- not how people it deserves treat each a other. response of some kind. Yeah, 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 for real. Yeah, well, good for you. All right. So the reason I was asking about Plaza Three, I'm a food nerd. I I do with food and dishes. So one of the dishes that I've been working on for a while, but I'm not there, is the uh, the steak soup from Plaza oh, Three. Oh yeah, that stuff was so, legendary. So I've got a couple of recipes for it, and I've got a couple, but it's not where I want it to be because with food, the recipe is only about thirty percent. You've got yeah. the ingredients and you got the technique. So yeah. I have a couple questions on on 
preparing that soup before I can release it to the public. Yeah, I, I certainly never worked behind the line there. No, um, no, I I've just worked, need, I need to talk to somebody that was there to yeah, answer a couple questions. Yeah, for me. I just don't know. Um, you know, it's funny. I I heard I saw Scott's name pass my, um, you know, sort of pass my desk uh, not too long ago. But okay. I have no idea where he's right. at. Well, we'll now. talk after later yeah, this week about that because Plaza Three. I mean, that steak soup. Uh, oh, yeah, that stuff was legendary. Yeah. It really was, and people would go in, and it was like a meal. I mean, it was very thick and and lots of really good strip steak in there. It yeah. was chunks of strip steak. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, wasn't uh, second-rate stuff. No. Yeah, and it was, a lot of the recipes you see nowadays says just use ground beef. Oh, yeah. And, and it wasn't as simple as that. the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's, I, I think I know what the secret is, but I want to confirm it before I start going crazy, you know, at my place on that one. That sounds so good. So we'll do that one. So any other places you liked eating at when back in the 70s or 80s? Oh, gosh. Back in the day, you know, one of the, I think uh, one of the, uh, I hope not forgotten, but I, I suspect it is forgotten, uh, legends here was La Bona Berge. Um, Gus Reedy was uh, arguably one of the, the top chefs in in the Midwest, and La Bona Berge was a very special place. It had a great wine program. Gus was, um, I believe, he was Swiss born and and um, really really sharp and really you know just it was a great restaurant. And and for those who remember La Bona Berge downtown, it was a remarkable place. You know, it's. It's funny. I mean, there's a lot of places that I can think of like that. I mean, La Mediterranea. Uh, I mean, Gilbert uh, was, uh, you know, he was a character and a half, but it was a real French joint, you know, and it was really fun that way. I mean, I, I probably could go on and on, but I'd, I'd, it's almost like I'd rather wax on about um, how much fun it was to be in those places, to to deal with people like Gus and Gilbert. And, of course, uh, Starkers for me was was really a, a, a an important foundational place. Even though I worked at Plaza 3 for uh, a few years, I ended up uh, working as or, or became a wholesaler. And one of my first accounts uh, was Starker's. And, and Bob Bath uh, was the nephew of Cliff Bath, the owner. And and Bob was in charge of the wine program. And Cliff and Bob had decided what they wanted was to get a Wine Spectator uh, Grand Award, which is something that had never happened in this part of the country before. And I was their salesman. And and uh, I I would just say you know Bob and Cliff I think felt that I was as much a part of the the success to the degree that they let me come along with them to the the award ceremony in New York and you know uh, who was it's the only time I ever got to see him who was playing at the award ceremony James Brown Woo! Ah. I mean I'm telling you, James Brown he knew what he was doing that man was a very very smart man it was an amazing show uh, we danced our butts off and yeah. and at the at the end of it I still remember. Uh, James reaches out and starts shaking hands for everybody. But Marvin Shankin, who's the owner of the Wine Spectator and the owner of the the Grand Awards, he's the man he pulled up on stage. I'm like, oh, James knows who's paying the bills here, you know. L- l- little white guy from, from Kansas City like me who's like <laughs> – got stars in his eyes like oh my god i'm standing next to maceo parker this sax player you know it's like this is the greatest thing ever it's like no you stay down there on the floor little man i'm gonna bring up marvin (laughs) well one of the 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 most fascinating things about this show because i I started on a whim i mean it doesn't really make business sense i don't do commercials i just pay for the hour myself but one interesting thing is how many dots get connected every single week now so gus uh, did you personally know Gus? Oh, yes, of course. Okay, yes. so I'm trying to get, there's one person that's in town that's a, a, an immediate family member. Okay. But she doesn't, I don't know if she wants to come on the show yet. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, because I mean, st- losing him was really tough. 
Yeah, but I've got a ne- I've got a nephew that that I think I will come on. And I was talking to Jasper, and Jasper considered him like a mentor. Oh, I did not know that Jasper and, and Gus had a relationship. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me. I yeah. mean, Jasper again, you know, knowing Jasper's dad and the, the wonderful times I got to have sitting at the family family table with Leonard and Jasper, you know, JJ and right. and, and and his dad. Oh my God, we used to laugh. So here's my hopes silly. that I want to do in the next probably the next two three months. I want to have a show on Gus. Oh, if that I can would be get so his immediate cool. family member, great. But if not, I want to have a a panel of three people. I'd like to include you. I want to get cool. Jasper. And see if you can think of one other chef in town that was influenced by him. Because, oh, I'm sure there's plenty. Oh, that's, oh yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's one thing Jasper said. There's a lot of people that, that owe, their, owe their success to him, mentoring from Gus. Yeah. And so it's just I want to go ahead and do – I want to do a single show to start with just to honor him in that because I, I think if you want to – if you appreciate and you got value from somebody like that when you're younger, the best way to honor them is to keep that memory alive. Well, for sure, and and he did so much for the for you know the culinary scene here that his name deserves to be re- remembered. You know, it's it's fun if if we do that, I'll definitely reach out to my first boss in the okay. wine business when I was a wholesaler. Used to be his sommelier, and he he now owns an import company based in okay. Chicago. Uh, I'll have to reach out for Corso to go. Hey, tell me some Gus Reedy stories I've forgotten. All right, you know? so so I, I have room for four people, so I've got two chairs filled. You and Jasper, cool. And so help me. Um, uh, you can fill one of the other ones, and I'll have Jasper figure out pick the person for the other one. Very cool. And I just want to. That will be a fascinating show to be able to do that. So, um, so I want to ask you another a kind of a personal wine question. This is just for you. It's I. I know absolutely nothing about wine, and I never. I was never exposed to it when I was younger. And so I really focused on the food side of it, and I didn't even know – I didn't really have experience with food until about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm a late bloomer on that. So is it too late at my age to develop a taste and, and, and a personal enjoyment of wine? Oh, heavens no. I mean, it, it, the truth of the matter is is that our palates or at least our preferences are ever-changing. And, and so, um, you know, what you liked when you're 20 years old is likely to be different than what you like when you're 40 or when you're 60. And, and each of us, uh, you know, I, I think each of us finds that you get sort of bored with the same old thing. I, I think of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc all the time that when it, it kind of came on the scene in 1985, we had never seen Sauvignon Blancs like that before. And it was revelatory. And so by the 90s, it was like a thing. Today, I'm sorry, with all due respect, if you have only New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, I'll just take a glass of water. You know, I'm really yeah. – not because there's nothing – you know, there's something wrong with the wine. I'm just uh, – I've had enough of them. Yeah, you've developed beyond that. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's just that we it, – it's like if all I could, drink, you know, eat every day were scallops, at some point I'd be like, you know, I really hate scallops. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we like – or at least most of us, most of us, I think, really like diversity and like, like you know, things to change, you know, change up. And, and so I, I come to that to say – you're going to like different things than you would have liked younger at a younger age. And, and why not, you know, find, find what you like. That's the important thing. When, when people are like, Oh, well, you know, I don't really like the wines I'm supposed to like, who the hell told you you were supposed to like certain wines. You're supposed to like the wines you like. And, and all of us have, have differing palates, but I, I, I do think one of the, one of the things that I, I find most vexing is how um, for a lot of wine, quote unquote experts, sweet wines are, are dull and un, uh, unimportant. And I'm like, excuse me, I would say 
the vast majority of mankind would be happier drinking a wine that has some some sweetness to it right. than a wine that's bone dry. I think the people that that actually like bone dry are a little bit freaks of nature, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, it's it's like most people like sweet things, and so a wine that has some sugar to it. Is perfectly fine. In fact, some of the most complex and long-lived wines in the world are wines that have sugar in them. Well, I think part of my problem was was timing. So I graduated from college in '86 and got a real job, and and the only I, I remember the the wine, the the only wine that I tried that I really enjoyed drinking back then was a white Zinfandel. Oh which, sure, yeah. which which but at that same time, all of a sudden, people became obsessed with wine. And the the level of pretension and wine took off to the point where they made fun of anybody who drank white zin vanilla. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, you know, and and I don't know in, if they still do, but well, white zin is is now sort of forgotten. Yeah. And and strangely, one day, and I really do joke about it this way, but it's like one day everybody got the memo and they went, "Yeah, you're not drinking white zin anymore. Now yeah. you must drink dry rosés." Yeah. And it was like, when did the memo go out? I yeah. I never saw the memo. I you know yeah. who, who wrote the damn thing? And and white zin just kind of disappeared, and and dry rosés took its place. And I'm fine with that. Again. Yeah. Drink whatever the hell you like. Right. But one of the ironies about White Zin is that um, Zinfandel, when White Zin came out basically in 1974, courtesy of Sutter Home, and and uh, they always uh, like, or, or at least uh, the, the Trinquero family used to love to tell the story. Uh, Bob Trinquero would, um, then in 74, he made like, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I believe his story was he, in, in 74, he made 800 cases of White Zin, just kind of as a whatever let's see what that's sure. like and in in 75 he didn't make any because he had some left and then in 76 he made some more and it was gone really quick and 10 years later he was doing a million cases yeah. a year and and the irony there is that while white zin is no longer a very big thing it helped california hang on to really old and important zinfandel vines and vineyards that were going to be torn out because nobody drank Zin anymore. Everybody was looking for California Cabernet and Chardonnay and and that and 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 so that white Zin phenomenon saved some of the most important vineyards in America. Okay, well, so I you know with food, I'm not a food snob either, but I. I'll go to the ends of the earth to perfect a single dish. Mm-hmm. But I can, like Jasper, I mean, Jasper's got 100 times more talent than I do. But he and I have one thing in common. We can still go to Dixon's Chili. Oh, sure. Once yeah. in a while enjoy a meal there. Yeah. We both go to like a place like um, uh, Taco Villa. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> so we still enjoy that. But one thing that I think bothered me, wine people would never do that. Oh, back you know, then, you know, and yeah, I'm, back then. I'm generalizing. I would say back then, yeah, yeah you know, it, I, I hear it, what you're saying, and it, it just was... turned me off at the time, so I never even gave gave it any effort. And it's it's probably the most glaring weak spot in my in what I eat and drink is that I never bothered to learn that. Well, maybe, I, it, and I'd like to. Yeah, maybe it never appealed to you. I, yeah. I, you know, there are people for whom uh, beer is everything that they need because the the world of beer is so much more complex than it yeah. was 30 years ago and and of course the cocktail world uh, really turned upside down with you know courtesy of Dale DeGroff and the Rainbow Room in New York who who popularized the 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 Cosmo and you know yeah. the, the world is is far more diverse and the opportunities to drink interesting things are far more diverse you know the world of cider that we can find now right. out there there's a lot of stuff to drink other than wine well it's it's where we're at today is so different where we were then there's a place down that that pop shop down on the um, river market has 150 different root beers 
that they have right access on. to. Yeah, exactly. And they carry 75 on any given day. Root beer. Yeah. No, I, it, it's we are a far more, I, I think, sophisticated consumer of everything than we were. And, and the inter, you know, the, the proverbial interwebs, you know, are part right. of that is you can find your tribe, you can find uh, minutiae at, at, amongst, you know, your other tribe members and really go down a rabbit hole of sarsaparilla or okay. you know, root beer All right, or So when we come back from the break, I'm going to ask you a favor and I'll give you a couple of minutes to think about it. I want to know one or two wines that I could start on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be candy sweet or anything like that, but I mean, it's just it, it can't if it's if it's very dry. I'd have no shot of learning to like it. You know, something that's a decent wine that I wouldn't be embarrassed to order at a restaurant. I'd like to give that a try. Absolutely. And then what, when we come back, we'll talk about that because it's it, the whole wine thing is because during that time frame, everybody was making fun of any wine that came in a bottle with a screw top. Right. Because if you didn't have cork, it wasn't a worthy wine. Yeah, that's then, different today. Yeah, and, and that's changed a lot. And box wine's the same way. Yeah, very much. You know, and it's just one of those things, you know, uh, I want to ask you uh, for a couple of really good quality box wines because there's mm-hmm. a lot of people just want to have one glass of wine a day. Sure. But if you do it in a bottle, I know mm-hmm. oxidation and everything else is a problem, but a box wine keeps longer. I That's it what does. I've been told. It does, yeah. All right. So I want a, a, a couple suggestions on that. Sure. I know that's pretty low brow for what you do. Well, but No worries. But um, I think some of my listeners appreciate that. All right. So if any of you out there have a question about wine that's a little bit more sophisticated than what I'm asking for, now would be a good time to go ahead and call. Rocco is working the phone lines. The phone number is 913 913- Five eight six seven seven nine eight. I used to say only one call at uh, take your time, but we have seven phone lines, and Rocco's kind of cocky and thinks he can handle it all. So everybody, go ahead and call in the next thirty seconds, and let's see what he can handle. I'd appreciate that. Now, if you enjoyed this program, be sure to follow Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. Number one way is to sign up for our email newsletter at makethemsmile.com. That's the website for the bakery. In the top left-hand corner, there's an email sign-up. I have uh, quite a few people that get my weekly uh, newsletter on that. Also, follow us on Facebook. On Facebook, uh, just look up Best Regards Bakery and Cafe or Best Regards KC. You'll find that I have about 15,000 followers there. And next week, this show is going to be preempted, so I will not be on the air, but we will be doing a Facebook Live uh, full video, and I'm going to have a guest, a former chef from the Gilbert Robinson organization. So he's a corporate chef there and also with the Haddad group. So we're going to get some behind the scenes stories on that. If you want to see that and hear that, go to Facebook Live next Saturday at 10 a.m. I'll also upload that as a podcast so you'll be able to get that along with the rest of these shows. If you've been wanting to come to Best Regards, today's a great day. Uh, A percentage of our sales today are all going to go to the St. Jude Foundation. We're doing a special event. One of my longtime employees, Lois, has been a firm believer of them. We supported them for quite a few years ago. And then then a few weeks ago, Jasper issued me a personal challenge to create a cannoli for National Cannoli Month. And uh, Doug just saw that. If you want to take a taste of that, I think you'll enjoy yeah. that. This That's an example of how I nerd out. So I was a little intimidated when Jasper asked me to do it because I can't just throw something together. So I did some research, a lot of things like that. So I looked for the most upscale, special occasion cannoli that they would make in Italy. And that's what I did. So I'm, I'm, uh, that is a Chantilly cream cannoli with um, mascarpone and everything else done high-end. It is, it's in all modesty, it's pretty amazing. Go to makethemsmile.com or best regards on Facebook, and you'll see a beautiful picture of that. I was only going to sell that last Saturday, but it sold out pretty fast. So we extended it through today, 
And so I have about 200 of those that we have ready to come in today. Enjoy that. Uh, two things, so you'll be able to donate to the St. Jude Foundation and also get to enjoy some cannolis and everything else that we make. It's a, it's a, be a nice treat. Did you get a taste of that, Doug? I sure did. Tasty oh. stuff, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you can touch anything Jasper does, though. Oh no! Yeah, yeah, you know, let's I, be honest. I mean, he's the he's the cannoli king in town. Mm-hmm. I just want to make one one cannoli or two cannolis that that are halfway respectable. I and you know, cannoli month, Jasper's had a different cannoli for every day this month. Seriously? Oh yeah, he does this every September, I, and I always I totally look forward to out it. On that. Yeah, and so it's I, I I'm not sure if I'm going to keep making it or not the cannoli, but it's that Chantilly cream is just I it it's it's fantastic. If anybody's ever had the Chantilly cake from Whole Foods, that gives you an idea of what that really is. I'm not sure that they make it from scratch the same way that I did with the ingredients <laughs> yeah, that they do. Probably did. not. All right, so Doug, so what would be a good starter wine for an adult like me that's never appreciated wine? You know, I think um, a lot of times uh, for for a lot of people, uh, sparkling wines are, are fun because you're sort of used to the the mm-hmm. idea that it's a celebratory wine and has been for centuries. Um, and main reason for that is that uh, Champagne, the region itself, is uh, an area uh, that a lot of battles o- over the years have have been held, and and you know kings kind of get crowned in the middle of the battlefield, and and you know you pick up the bloody crown off one king and put it on your own head, and now you ask for a drink, and you drink what's near at hand, and that was Champagne, and and so uh, uh, it, it became, if only by historical accident. Uh, that sparkling wine idea became something that we associate with celebratory wines. And, and I think a lot of people enjoy that. So uh, it, honestly, as silly as this sounds, to, to get just a simple Prosecco, I think for most people is, it's, mo- you know, it's a sort of modestly priced, typically it's a, a softer wine, usually a little bit creamy as much as it is sparkling and bubbly and frothy and all of that. And, and I think that's a, a really good wine just to say, look, this wine isn't going to offend anybody. Uh, maybe it's not exciting, but it, it's a good way to get used to, you know, that the, the weight and the flavor and the character and the feel of, of wine. As I, as I uh, have already alluded to, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of wines that have a bit of off-dry character to them. That's to say just a touch of sweetness. I'm a fanatic for German Riesling, to be honest with you. And and uh, perhaps, unfortunately, these days, German Rieslings are more expensive than they used to be. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm glad they're making some damn money, you know, because people have got to stay in business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often uh, look for Rieslings from Germany and, and a lot of them can be inexpensive. Like there's one called Blue Slate that's perfectly inexpensive and, and perfectly uh, pretty and has a little touch of sweetness to it and then plenty of tartness to it as well that that finishes it up. So it's a sweet tart kind of experience that I really enjoy. Um, and then great, there are great producers like like uh, J.J. Prum uh, who make these phenomenal uh, Rieslings that I think are super, super exciting. And if people are looking for um, uh, something local, and I really That was going to be my think, next question. Yeah, no, I, I, I often find it, it uh, sad that people uh, even – People who know a lot about wine don't pay attention to the wines being made around them. I mean, Holyfield and Basor makes really some phenomenal wines. Michelle's a damn good winemaker, and and uh, her her late harvest Vignol, her Vignol, and it, Vignol being the name of the grape, it's V I G N O L E S, is I think uh, uh, well, I've taken it around the world, not okay. around the country. I've All taken right, it around the world to shock people. All right, so I've got a couple calls and several texts, so I'm going to run out of time. So would would could you send me an email 
sure. in the next couple of days that kind of give me a maybe your top five suggestions. Sure. And I want at least three of those to be lo- – or make them all local. I mean, for – Absolutely. For, for, I mean, Le Bourgeois Brat, their, their okay. uh, uh, standard sparkling wine is really, okay. really good, as is Stone Hills. All right. I mean, those so are I want to – so there's several good wineries, excellent wineries around town. I'd, I'd like to have uh, – in fact, give, I want five suggestions no of problem. where to start from them. Absolutely. And so all the listeners out there, my email that will be going out on Monday or Tuesday will have these suggestions. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of us that would love to do that, but we're – like when I, the first time I went to that pop shop with 75 different root beers, it's intimidating to the point where you almost walk away. Right, yeah. And I, and I don't – we don't want to do that with the local places. Sure. All right, so you, let's go ahead and get your headphone on. Rocco, let's go ahead and go to line one with Dale. Are you there, Dale? Yes, I am. All right. What question do you have for us? Well, this is maybe a little bit more of a nutrition question, and I'm glad, uh, Mr. Frost, that you said you like off-dry because uh, I'm, I've am i found that I really enjoy a good port wine in the oh, evening. Cool. Yeah. And uh, But I'm, in, I'm afraid I'm enjoying it too much, uh, <laughs> and I... <laughs> well, I've been cutting down on sugar in my life, uh, and I'm very, very successful, except that I'm in- increasing my port content. I, I, but I don't know enough about the sugar in, in wine, um, and I don't know how to even ask the question. What what form is that in, and, and is there a lot? Is that a lot of caloric content, or how does that work? Well, it does add, you know, sugar will add caloric content to wine. So you're right. It has an impact Having said that, however, uh, typically, you know, if you took a soda pop off the shelf and you put it next to a wine, that that soda pop's going to have three or four times as much sugar as a so-called off-dry wine would have. So there's quite a bit less sugar in wine, but, you know, there's alcohol in it as well, and that too is going to impact the caloric content. And then you talk about a, a, a wine style like port. Um, they actually fortify it, and, and by that what is meant is they take – some uh, essentially alcohol, you know, it's like vodka made out of grapes, and they dump it into the the fermenting uh, must, the grape juice itself, which drives the alcohol up to, let's say, 18% or so, and kills off the yeast. And that's why there's sweetness in the wine, is because wine is essentially sweet grape juice that yeast have converted that sweetness into alcohol. So port is all about uh, putting putting a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of vodka, like I say, basically, into the into the grape juice while it's fermenting. So the yeast can't finish their job, and there's some sugar left over. So you know that the other option might be, like I say, to try um, some of the uh, uh, off dry um, white wines. And and I mentioned German uh, Riesling, but local wines, many of them are made in an off dry style as well. And they're going to have a lot lower alcohol level. To, to put that in perspective, um, a port's typically going to be 18 to 20% alcohol. Your average cocktail is going to be like 25% alcohol, depending upon, you know, where you get your cocktail and where, whether you're having a, a, a highball or, or, you know, a Manhattan or something like that. And then when you start talking about the local wines, a lot of those are 12 or 13% alcohol. And I and when I get enthused about my German wines, my German Rieslings, a lot of those sweeter versions are eight or nine percent alcohol, which is closer to a beer. And and so each of those, you know, at each of those levels, the more alcohol, the more caloric content. Just like the more sugar, the more caloric content. Well, that makes sense. Uh, in fact, oddly enough, I my second choice would be a Riesling. I, I do enjoy those sometimes. Yeah, but, I, uh, I especially you know when it gets hot, man. I love I love drinking those ice cold things. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and Dale, and also, it, it, when you're watching sugar and things like that, take a holistic approach. If you're eating any processed foods uh, at home, like foods out of a can, or you're eating any sandwiches made with commercial white bread, you're getting so much more sugar and junk in that than you are in that glass of wine. Yeah, I don't actually do that. I pretty much eat organic. I've got it's all under control except yeah. for the pork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, good. well, all things in moderation. All right, all right. Thank, thank, thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. All right, Rocco. Let's go to line two with Tim. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Uh, I just wanted to take, thank Doug for what he's done for Kansas City, um, being such a great expert without being a snob. I really loved the old show, Check, Please. Oh, thank you. It, yeah, it introduced me to my favorite family restaurant, Grunauer. Oh, right on. Every year. Right on, Grunauer. Yeah, and I just love going there because you could get a nice, off- I don't do wine, but I love going to a place where you can get a wine you can't get off the shelf. Oh, like no kidding. Like a nice Austrian wine to have with Austrian food. It's really beautiful. I love that place. I really do. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's and, and the wine list, exactly as you say, it reflects, you know, their family heritage. And, and uh, there's some really cool wines there, as you say, that you're just not going to see anyplace else. And there's two things I lament. Doug, I lament the loss of a great $6 Riesling, like you said. <laughs> um, they just don't do that anymore. And then, Robert, I miss all of the old German restaurants that we used to have because I say Grunauer is a family restaurant because that's as inexpensive as I could get to get really good German food around town now, now that we lost Berliner Bear right. and uh, the Rhinelander. So yep. love so, to hear a show about the old German restaurant. Um, I'll, I will do one of those. That's on my list. I have a list. That was probably in the top 10 when I first started the show, and it's got bumped down to probably about 15 just because so many interesting topics. But So, Grunauer, what, was your, what is your number one favorite dish that you would introduce somebody oh, to? Oh, gosh. Got to pick one. <laughs> my wife will say the, the Jaeger schnitzel, but I love All right, so do you just find a way to sneak a, in two choices? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 you know, I'm talking for my wife, but All I right. love the wild mushroom um, – Oh, goulash that they have. It's oh, a little yeah. bit more modern, but it's like wild mushrooms with that spicy pepper sauce on a plate of, I can't say it right, spazzo or something like that. Yeah, spazzo. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very good. Yeah. All well, right. And let's not forget a fair. I mean, a fair is, uh, that, that's a phenomenal restaurant as well. Well, that's, I think. that's anniversary night, not family. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. I hear but that. Good. All right, Tim, that. I'm with you. I, I have the same budget you do. I, I, <laughs> all right. All right. So I will go try that wild mushroom goulash. Yes, it's, it's wonderful. And I, I will think of you while I do that, Tim. All right. Thanks, Robert. All right. I appreciate you calling. Thanks, Tim. All right. All right. Bye. You know, a budget's a real concern for, you know, it's, it's more of a concern now than it was two years ago. Yeah, no, I, I mean, we all uh, have to have to at least I think most of us have yeah. to abide by some damn budget. But yeah. uh, for me, we it's funny, my wife and I don't go out that much because I'm on the road so much that when I get home, I'm pretty happy just cooking something up myself and and uh, or, or, you know, or she does the same. So when we do go out, it's not that frequent. And and it's like, yeah, you don't want to go crazy out there. Um, so but, you're making your wife stay home to eat with you because you eat out too much on the road. You know, she's okay with that. She, it's funny. The, the is thing, she really? 
Oh, yeah, no, she is, because the thing about it is what she doesn't like are these stupid long meals yeah. that we often get subjected to. You know, when you when you have friends in the restaurant business, uh, unfortunately what happens is somebody will come out and start talking to you, and my yeah. wife's looking at me like, I came here not to talk to you, to watch you talk to some guy. Yeah. I came here because I thought we were going out to dinner, and she hates the four-hour meal because she just gets antsy after an hour or so. So, so no, I, you know, it really is true that... Uh, my favorite thing in the world to do is to go someplace where nobody knows me and the two of us can just sit there and talk. And, and I, you know, sorry, I don't mean to feel, you know, sound ungrateful, but you know, so often you in the restaurant business, it's such a small business. We all know each other, but it's like the most annoying thing in the world when you're out at an, and and I've literally had this happen where somebody's like, sir, it's your anniversary. That's so cool. (laughs) How long you guys been married? I'm like, I wasn't here to do an interview, bro. I'm here on my anniversary dinner. (laughs) All right, Doug, bring your wife to my place. I'm near 119th at Metcalf. It'll be, it'll be comfortable, quiet, and old school. There you go. Uh, But come, come do that one. All right. So we're let's go ahead and go to line three with Phil. Phil, are you there? Oh, yeah, I'm here. All right, what, what yeah, do you have for you us? Were, when you were speaking of the celebratory nature of champagne, it reminded me of a personal story I'd like to share with you because part of the mystique of champagne is the, the act of popping the cork. Yes. And, and people love that. And for many years, I was the self-appointed champagne caterer to a big hippie festival out in Oregon. Oh, cool. And And... A cold bottle of champagne was the last thing anybody could imagine obtaining out there. (laughs) But I brought in cases of champagne. I had coolers and ice, and I kept them cold. I bought the cheapest champagne I could get because the labels soaked off while they were in the coolers anyway. It was the concept of an ice-cold bottle of champagne out there among the the, the heat and the dust and and the hippies dancing around and whatnot, and I would peddle the champagne. Well, one year... My champagne distributor, he said, I've got a bunch of champagne I could sell you really cheap, but the problem is there's too much gas in it, and when you pop the cork, half of the champagne goes up in the air. And I said, give me all you got, because the people will love it. It's the experience <laughs> of, of, of popping the cork and the, and the champagne geyser that everybody is after, and it was a tremendous hit. Oh, that's so funny. That's that, no, you're right. People, uh, it's funny because in the sommelier, uh, you know, industry, our job is to open the cork as as carefully and quietly, and you know, it should be like, you know, and that's a successful opening. As you said, what do people want? Pop the damn yeah. thing. <laughs> well, I've mastered the art of the quiet release because I yes. worked at a couple of restaurants and the bars where you had to do that. Yep. I mean, nobody, the, the customers don't want to spend that much money in a restaurant. On something they're not going to drink, right? That for sure. Well, well, and 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 uh, spewing half the wine into the air is not ideal either. <laughs> but like you said, uh, you know, unless you won the ten, world championship or yeah, something like exactly. that, exactly. Then then go for it. And and of course, then there's the the sabering thing where you definitely lose, you know, a good portion of the, yeah. the wine. All right, uh, it's Phil, super. Phil, I gotta let you go. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate that. You bet. All right, so so tell me about this. I was going to ask you about the whole sword or the saber thing. What's well, you know, I I ha- have a theory at least that one of the reasons that it exists, uh, sabrage as it's called, 
um, is because once upon a time, people didn't riddle or, or use the remouage method for removing the dead yeast cells in the bottle. So it, 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 in, uh, truthfully, in Dom Perignon's time, wines were stored upside down. And so the yeast would all settle down to the bottom of the bottle. And at some point, as the story goes, the, the military, uh, when they would uh, enjoy a wine, because everybody would have to literally open it up upside down, dump out that sludge, and then turn it upright again. You could do the same thing with Sabrage. If you hold the bottle to the side, hit it with the, the uh, saber in just the right spot, the top uh, uh, you know, couple of inches of the, the bottle itself will break loose with the cork inside. That plug or that those dead yeast cells will all come flying out as well. And now you have a, a nice, clean uh, bottle of wine. These days, it, there's not that many wines made with the yeast still in sure. them, although that's a thing now. It's a, a thing called Petnat or Petillon Naturellement. And, and that, so that's being done again. But just exactly as, as Phil was describing, that means when you open up some of those wines that have sludge in them, the, the wine's going to be you know geysering out of the bottle. And I don't understand. I paid for all the wine yeah. in that bottle. I want it in the bottle. Is there any place or anybody that still does that? Sabrage? Yeah. Oh yeah. Lots of lots of people still do it, but only on special occasion. I have okay. my own my own sword for the very <laughs> process because you know it's fun to do. Hell, I might do Let it. Let me guess, you were gifted by royalty in in France or something? No, I just no. bought my damn. You know, I, I went and found one that would be impressive. Shall you should put an, uh, um, have it engraved with something fake and uh, impressive to <laughs> let somebody read that. True. My Heidelberg fencing trophy. <laughs> yes. All right, um, Rocco. Let's go to line one with Dorothy. Dorothy, are you there? Yes, I am. All right, what do you have for us? Well, in the late 70s and early 80s, I was working in Brookside, and we would sometimes celebrate certain uh, occasions at a place, and I don't even remember the name of the place, but we would get May wine, and I loved that wine. and I find it anymore. No, you're right. May wine or my wine, my vine, as the Germans call it, we just don't see it anymore. It used to be a thing. And in fact, you know, the, the well-known brand Jacob Demmer used to always bring a my vine or a may wine to the market. And and, and the idea behind may wine really was it, it, it is, if you will, the spring wine. It's the, the wine that's um, ready to go. Um, it's an early drinker. And, and it became a, became a thing I think I suspect back in the 50s and 60s in Germany and then found its way over here in the in the 60s and 70s but I, truthfully I just don't see anybody doing that any longer and of course what it was was just an inexpensive off dry or slightly sweet uh, Riesling, we hope. A lot of times it was a grape called Mirlo Turgau, which is good, but not as good. And and so, you know, I would just say, just get yourself a, a, a nice off-dry Riesling from Germany and you'll have almost the same experience, but okay. not exactly the same thing, Dorothy. Yeah, I just wondered because I couldn't find it anywhere. I thought they probably weren't making it anymore. Yeah, it 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 stopped being a thing, and and so much about wine is sort of faddish, and and so I think I haven't seen a bottle of May wine in you know at least thirty years, probably. Uh, and uh, it was a German wine, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dorothy. At least now you have a, a decent place to start to find a replacement. Yeah, I usually I don't drink a lot of wine. I don't I have to be careful because I am diabetic, so I don't don't try not to increase my sugar intake. <laughs> sure. Yes. All right. Well, Dorothy, thank you for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Rocco, let's go ahead and go to Richard. Let's make that the last call for today. Richard, are you there? 
Yes, I am. All How right. are you? Good. What do you have for us? Well, Doug, I want to say um, it was a pleasure meeting you a few years ago at Borgmont. We did a oh, wine cool. and food pairing. Yeah, yeah And you had brought some of your wines from the Walla Walla Valley. Indeed. Yes. Thank you, Richard. And, I appreciate um, that. I, I have a question about Syrah. Yes. Um, so you, I believe you had a, a Syrah there. Uh, yeah, we continue and to make one. There's not too many around here. There's a few wineries here in town that have it, but not very many have it. Is there a reason for that? Well, I think um, Syrah is not as popular as like a Cabernet Sauvignon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Syrah certainly is a, a, a grape that is uh, at home on the West Coast, less so in the mid, uh, middle part of the country and, and uh, okay. definitely less so on the East as well as uh, though there are some good Syrahs made in, in a few places in the East. Um, but it, it's just uh, there's a lot less of it planted than Cabernet or Chardonnay uh, uh, or even Merlot and Pinot Noir for that matter. And um, it's a grape that I think that in truth, California has struggled to make a good version of it. Whereas places like Washington and even uh, in Oregon have done a really good job with it. But um, uh, Australia has been famous for it. They call it often Shiraz. And uh-huh. yeah, and then, you know, they started making like eight ninety nine dollars bo- uh, bottles of Shiraz. And so the reputation of, of the grape kind of suffered because people are like, oh, that's the cheap Australian stuff. And it's like, right. no, it's actually, it can be quite complex. But so I think yeah. there's just kind of some marketing reasons why Syrah hasn't been as popular as it might otherwise be. I know in some places I've had it, you think it tastes good. And then you go to another winery and it's even better. And it's like, it's amazing how... It tastes so different from one place to another versus like, uh, you know, let's say other wines uh, all taste the same everywhere you go. Yeah, I think I, I think in, indeed Syrah, like Pinot Noir, is really sensitive to where it's grown and particularly what the climate is like. And so you can grow it in a hot spot and you can make, you know, something that tastes like Australian Shiraz or you can grow it in a cold spot and make something that is a lot more like um, France's home uh, for the grape, which is a, a place called the Rhone Valley in the north in particular. So it has a, a, a real wide spectrum of, of available flavors, really. Well, I appreciate your expertise, and it was a pleasure talking to you. All right. Thank, so thank you for calling, Richard. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. All right. So this is interesting. So, D- Doug, um, if you haven't been a longtime listener to the show, about two months ago I had a, a – an entire hour on pork tenderloins. Oh, nice. We got phone calls from um, a lot of callers. People have been going around. Rod, Gray, and I both made the rounds. At the end of that show, I was able to put together a flyer that listed the top three that you absolutely must try, and then the next two that after you do that, try, give these two a try. And that was downloaded and printed off by a lot of people. I think we have an opportunity here to provide the same kind of information that people will find actionable and um, that they have a good comfort level with. So it's what um, what I want to do is I want to work with you on a few things. Uh, a couple of people online asked me, what's a good restaurant that's not a special occasion, which tells me it's not a once a year that they go to that has a great wine list. Oh, wow. So, so, uh, but, but send me in the email because we're oh, running okay. out of time. Very good. And then um, somebody was asking about a great red wine and um, another wine to go with dessert. Understood. But I really want the local wineries around town a couple wines for you to that that you would suggest and then uh you work you you work actively with a company on with wine right 
Um, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. a co-owner of a winery in, okay. wa- in Washington. So, so send me some information on that because I know my listeners will want to support you on that and give a couple of those a try. Great. Thanks. All right. So real quick, um, be sure to come by and see us at Best Regards Bakery and Cafe. We're at 119th and Glenwood and Overland Park. It's two blocks east of Metcalf. We're across the street from Cheesecake Factory next door to Johnny's. We're open today till 2, and you go to the website and see the rest of the hours. Like a lot of the restaurants that we talk about here on the show, Sherry and I are always there to visit with you and also hear your stories about future shows coming up in the in the future. Lastly, don't forget that this and all of our past shows are available worldwide on podcast platforms. Just search for Kansas City Food Memories. Doug, thank you for being here. My hope, pleasure. Hope yeah. you enjoyed that. And thank you, Rocco, for a great job on the boards. And the rest of you, come to uh, watch Best Regards live on Facebook. This broadcast of Kansas City Food Memory.